Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silken in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano, who is in his remote uh, location. Of, of, you're in Charlottesville right now, Frank, is that right? Yes, David, I am in Charlottesville, Virginia, having recently been in Washington, D.C. to attend a, uh, a Burns Night celebration on behalf of the University of Edinburgh, hosted by the British Embassy, I should say, and then uh, have come down here to, to have some meetings and do some work. Excellent, excellent stuff. All right, and you have toasted the poet appropriately, I hope. Yes, yes, yes. The Burns yes. Night was was excellent. Was excellent. I, I, I mean, I, I'm sure I've probably said this on previous episodes of the podcast. I don't actually like Burns's poetry all that much, um, <laughs> but you know, if they want, I, I do like Burns Night as a celebration, as a cultural holiday. I think it's, okay. I think it's a celebration of. Scotland and its global influence, it's it's quite good. It's uh but but you know, I can take or leave Robert Burns's poetry, but that's just me. Okay. Uh, poetry is an acquired taste. Um and and idiosyncratic at that. Right. The big news story among the big news stories in the past week, or at least the most amusing news story of the past week in some ways, uh, was the uh flight over the United States of a Chinese balloon. Some people call it a spy balloon or a going to Chinese authorities, a weather balloon uh, that was uh, transversed the United States and then was shot down uh, by American pilots just over at the Atlantic um, just a couple of days ago. So we thought we'd talk about the history of balloons and ballooning and uh, in particular about how balloons are fit into uh, global diplomacy and war and all that kinds of fun things. Yeah, David, I've got to say something and here's where you know, I happen to be in the United States for the past week. Um, I, I don't like your tone because I don't think you understand the terror we've lived in lived with yes. as, as this balloon <laughs> has, has traversed the continent and as we waited not knowing where it was going to go next. I, I you know I, I I don't like your tone, sir. Okay. I think this is a very serious well, incident that, and, and your your attitude is, is is why this country is in danger. Uh, I'm sure it is. And I'm, <laughs> were you out in the backyard trying to shoot it down, Frank? Because it probably passed not that far from Charlottesville. I was it like it passed close to everything. Yeah, it's true. Well, and, and one thing that was remarkable to me, and, and this is my own ignorance, I suppose, how quickly it moved. You know, one day it was in Montana, the next day, I mean, not the next day, but a couple of days later, it was, you know, over Virginia, North Carolina, and off the coast of North Carolina being shot down by the by the uh, U.S. military. So it did, it did move pretty quickly. It's a very high altitude, I think. And, and just, uh, you know, the, the, it was, I was very amused at all the calls to shoot it down because I think the people who were doing so don't realize first how high that balloon is or how powerful their guns are because so, uh, but but why didn't they because clearly the military had the capacity to shoot it down the air force or the navy or yes. any of the branches of the military had the capacity to do it well, i mean they, some people were bemused i think as to why or or confused as to why the military didn't do it sooner i mean why did you know there aren't a whole lot of people in montana why didn't they shoot it down over montana I think once you shoot it down, like it could crash, and you know it's hard to know exactly how it's going to crash. Uh, it's hard to aim something that you know because it is huge. It seems like the 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 both the balloon itself and then the sort of apparatus below it seems like what they described as what the length of two school buses or something. Um, so you know, uh, even over Montana, it could, could cause some damage. Uh, right. So so and, and the equipment that <laughs> accompanied it. You know, we think balloon and you think about either a kid's balloon at a party or you think of a <laughs> exactly, balloon yes. like in the 19th century. This is a substantial piece of kit. 
um, with stuff that if it landed on your house or landed on you could be quite dangerous. I mean, I think that's what, and I think when you just, I think when people saw images on social media or on, on, on the news of this thing that basically looked like the moon, it looked like, oh, well, that's just a balloon. Why don't they shoot it down? But it was, a, it was more substantial than that. Yes. And actually shooting it down is quite hard. I mean, the thing was flying well above the, the altitude of most planes, including most military planes. Um, so it's, it was at like 50 to 100,000 feet, you know, and, and, you know, your normal jetliner goes at 35,000 feet. Right. So, so this thing was pretty high up. It also would have been very embarrassing if they tried to shoot it down and missed. Yes, that would have been embarrassing. I mean, I but, think I, I, I think there's a there's a this whole story, which I think we're taking with tongues slightly in cheek uh, and appropriately. So um, on one hand is about balloons and we, we're going to talk about the history of ballooning uh, today. But on the other, it became a national security problem, not simply because the Chinese, it's, it seems to have been a, a spy balloon or surveilling something, uh, but also. It, it became a, a crisis because of the context of Sino-American relations. You know, if it had been a Canadian weather balloon, I don't think people would have been as agitated, right? Um, so, so I think that the, the 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 context really mattered, and therefore the shooting it down or not shooting it down became a real partisan mm. question here, as you know. Uh, you know, Joe Biden was being presented as weak because he wouldn't stand up to the Chinese balloon and all this kind of nonsense for a few days. Um, but But... The, the political context and the the context of international relations is what made this story something more than just an oddity. I think. Yeah, I think that think that's right. I think the you know, the hyper partisanship of, of this particular moment has enabled even a rogue balloon. Uh, it seems like this is not the first rogue balloon, to, or if it is a rogue balloon, uh, or at least the first Chinese balloon to enter American airspace uh, in recent years. It sounds like there were three during the Trump administration, at least. Uh, that they know about, um, and there may have been others. So that's right. That's right. And, and some of the partisan criticism was tapped down when that information came out um, on Sunday, Monday, I think, of of, of this week. Uh, and there are, seem to be other um, Chinese balloons um, in South America, for example. Uh, there was a there was a report this morning. Um, the United States, of course, is, is doing its own surveillance with all kinds of uh, machines as well. But that's a mm. something we might get to. But sure. So let's talk about the history of the United States and balloons. And of course, there's a Thomas Jefferson connection with this, because it's Thomas Jefferson connection with everything near Macho. So tell us, tell us the Thomas Jefferson balloon story. Right. So for you listeners who who have seen the John Adams miniseries um, with Paul Giamatti playing John Adams, you may recall an episode where Adams and Jefferson go to see a balloon flight in Paris. Now that flight took place, but that actual incident didn't take place because what happened was one of the earliest, so, so ballooning really took off, if you'll pardon the pun, um, uh -huh. in France in the 1780s and 90s. So France was the world leader in developing uh, this technology, although there was, there was a lot of activity in Britain too. And one of the earliest um, balloon flights, um, manned balloon flights or personed balloon flights, um, took place in November of 1783. Uh, and John Adams did indeed attend that, as did Benjamin Franklin and John Jay. 
John Adams brought his son, John, John Quincy Adams, uh, who, of course, would go on to have a famous career of his own, who was then 16. They went to view this uh, first um, uh, balloon flight by a human being in Paris on November 21st, 1783. Thomas Jefferson was not there because he didn't arrive in Paris until 1784. So despite the, the, the fact that this was portrayed in the John Adams miniseries, they, they, the, the uh, makers of that program took a little bit of license with that. It's not entirely wrong, however, because Jefferson took a great interest in ballooning. And we had, you know, he went to see a balloon um, ascent in the Tuileries Gardens on September 19th, 1784, that was witnessed by thousands of people. So these were kind of regular occurrences in the early 1780s. In 1785, um, a man who became one of the leading aeronauts of the age, a man named Jean-Pierre Blanchard, uh, crossed the English Channel. Uh, and Blanchard would come to America in 1793. He would come to the United States. And on January 9th, 1793, he ascended from the Walnut Street prison in Philadelphia. Nice. Um, and in the first, what was seen as one of the first manned, believed to be the first manned balloon flight in, um, in the United States, witnessed by 40,000 people, most of whom didn't pay. So Blanchard wanted people to pay $5 to witness this uh, balloon flight. $5, that's a lot of money. Yes, it's a lot of money. It's about $115 today uh, inside the Walnut Street prison, but people didn't pay to go into the prison to see this. <laughs> Instead, they, they're Philly people. Uh, they stood outside, probably booed the balloon. Yeah, it's, uh, it's hard to like, you know, like charge a tent for a balloon flight when the thing's going hundreds of feet in the air. Um, you know, okay. Yes. Indeed. So, so, so they, uh, he ascends, he flies for about 45 minutes. He crosses the Delaware river into New Jersey and he came down in Deptford township, New Jersey. As I say, his ascent was witnessed by, uh, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and James Monroe. So he did attract, um, prominent figures to, to see this when he landed he was confronted by a couple of New Jersey farmers, one of whom had a musket and the other a pitchfork. But he proffered a letter that George Washington had given him that stated that no one should should, present, should oppose and no hindrance or molestation of Mr. Blank should, should occur. And so he was able to produce this letter from George Washington to protect himself. As far as American ballooning goes, one of the people who witnessed the um those that early ascent back in 1783 in paris was a man named dr john falk and falk was a um a surgeon and he experimented with balloons and ballooning after he returned to the united states in the 1780s and so he was he was he was um uh launching balloons in in philadelphia and and um in the philadelphia area and um gave several lectures at the American Philosophical Society on, on balloons and the theories behind balloons. And we know that Jefferson was very interested in this subject. There are some sketches in his papers of early balloons. Um, Washington seems to have been interested. There was, in the late 19th, 18th century, excuse me, there was a sort of mania for balloons. Um, Napoleon created a balloon corps for his army at one point uh, that he took 
when he invaded Egypt. Um, the balloon corps lost all its equipment at the Battle of the Nile, so it didn't actually do anything. Um, but but there were there were worries. There was sort of you have to remember this is the era of the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars. There was a kind of there was not only balloon mania. There was also, if you will, balloon phobia, which which might. Um, it has some echoes in what we've seen in the past week. There were great concerns in Britain, for example, that the French might invade Britain using balloons, um, and not really recognizing how inefficient as a, as a mode of transport this would be. But, but of course, it goes to, I mean, we, we can laugh and we should laugh. I mean, we, we chose this topic because it's a bit lighthearted. Um, mm. uh, it's lighter than air, one might say. Um, <laughs> uh, but Stay for the, bad the, the, the the concern, some of the concern we saw in the last week in the United States has echoes to those that was those responses to the these early mm -hmm. balloon flights where there was a sense of fascination, but also trepidation that your enemies, that your rivals have mm -hmm. this technology. And it's a technology we can all understand. You know, it's difficult for us to understand you know, um, satellites, for example. Mm. <laughs> I mean, we, you you can know what a satellite is, but in most cases you can't see them, or if you can, they're so far away, you don't, you don't realize it's a satellite. Um, but a balloon is a kind of comprehensible threat, and it's, I think, or, and, and it's both a kind of fun child's toy, but also, uh, I, I think, can have sinister implications. So I think, uh, I, I think, you know, we, we can, we can chuckle about British fears that the French were going to use balloons to invade Britain during the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, but it's not a million miles from the response of some people that we've seen in the United States over the over the, the, this Chinese weather balloon. Uh, I think we get uh, we well, we have to go to your century, of course, um, and, and talk about uh, balloons in the 19th century, because th there are kind of cons consistent um object of interest and and slightly peculiar things people are people pay to see balloons people are fascinated by balloons in the 19th century i think and, and again i, I want to hand it over to you to talk mm -hmm. about that two interesting things if i may before i hand over to you though uh, david one is there is no balloon well there's a balloon mentioned but but phileas fogg does not travel by balloon in around the world in 80 days how does he travel around the world he travels by steamship and train and everything else, but he in, in our mind's eyes, I think, in the, in, the, in the kind of memory of popular culture, if one can speak of such a thing, he's often associated with balloons, but he did not. Now, now Verne wrote a book about balloon travel, so I think okay. that's part of it. Plus, it just seems like the kind of thing he would have done. On the other hand, Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn, and Jim traveled around the world and traveled over Africa, in fact, by balloon in Tom Sawyer Abroad, Mark oh. Twain's 1894 novel, which frankly in the Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn, Jim universe is one of the weaker entries. Uh, <laughs> but in the in the in Tom Sawyer Abroad, uh, balloons figure very, very prominently. And 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 uh, Mark Twain was fascinated by balloons. And that makes sense because the, the, the kind of kind of both quirkiness and if you sinister might be overputting it, but it's not surprising to me that Mark Twain would have been fascinated by balloons. Okay, sure. balloon and there, there are lots of people who are in the 18 mid 19th century who are going to see balloon exhibitions. And that's right. So, especially so, French visitors who are, who are bringing these things over. That's right. Cause the French are like, this is their thing. They're the cutting edge yeah. of this. So the one thing I'll say before I hand things over to you and your centuries in those very, very early uh, French balloon flights, 
we see uh, we they anticipate what will happen later with 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 um, experimental space flight. So they send animals up first. So the very earliest French um, innovators with balloon travel send <laughs> they send ducks and roosters up in the in, in balloons before they send uh, human beings. They, so they send they send birds. Well, I guess birds are light, so that makes them easy. Well, to and, and maybe it's a humane alternative thing, because I'm just saying the duck can fly. Okay, the duck can fly, but roosters can't fly. So it's, <laughs> but well, the cock, the of course, the, the the rooster, the cock is is a is a is a symbol of of France. So oh, maybe that okay. was a patriotic statement, I guess. But but uh, yeah, but they are sending birds up uh, first before they um, send human beings. So what happens in your century, David? Uh, well, so there is you know this fascination with balloons and a fascination with what beyond sort of spectacle, what you can do with them. Uh, and this really comes to the fore during the Civil War when there is this thought, well, how can we use this technology for military purposes? And there's actually a bunch of people who are competing for uh, sort of leading the balloon corps uh, for the Union. And the guy who ends up doing is a guy named Thaddeus Lowe, who does a demonstration of his balloon in front of the White House in June of 1861, he, he gets his balloon, a balloon called the, the Enterprise, just like the Starship, and um, loads up with gas right next to the White House, has it go up 500 feet or something, and then has a telegraph line from the balloon, goes down into the White House and is able to send a direct message huh. from the 500 feet up to President Lincoln describing what the, the sites of, of DC look like as they're building. Uh, fortifications. Um, so Lowe and his, his balloon corps, they, they are involved, uh, they're used in a number of battles uh, in 1861 and 1862 in the Eastern Theater, so in the Peninsula Campaign, uh, in fights around uh, DC and what have you. Um, but it is very much uh, uh, an information gathering technology than, rather than actual warfare. Uh, at one point, somebody suggests to Lowe, hey, could you think you could drop something from your balloon on the enemy? And he said, no, that would be deeply immoral. I'm not doing that. Huh. Um, now, part of that was also any kind of thing you drop, the weight limits on these balloons were fairly severe. So you only have a, one opportunity to drop something. So it probably wouldn't be a great idea anyway. Um, but there were actually fights about you know, where this balloon corps fit into the military hierarchy because they were technically civilians. And so are they military people? Are they non-military people? Uh, but I like the sort of the combination of balloon and the telegraph uh, as these two technologies that allowed them to sort of see what the enemy was doing and, and plan accordingly. Uh, there were efforts by Confederates to shoot these things down. Uh, but the big problem actually turned out to be mostly the Union's own soldiers, because when these balloons came down, soldiers often didn't know who they were or what they were. And so often uh, Lowe and his crews were accosted by, by Union soldiers um, when they came down. Uh, so it wasn't a particularly effective piece of technology, to be sure they got some information about enemy movements, but, but it wasn't as robust as what Lowe promised, uh, and most Union generals didn't really see a, a purpose for them. There is also, by the way, the first aircraft carrier in the in the Civil War, because they do launch one of these things from a raft. So it is aircraft that is launched from a, a naval vessel. So technically right. an aircraft carrier, um, sort of, um, you know, uh, 
the Civil War is an interesting place for you know exploring new technologies. They also have submarines and things that don't work very well. Um, but uh, it, it is largely a, a novelty more than an effective military technique. Um, the army plays around with a balloon corps throughout the rest of the 19th century. They use it briefly in the Spanish-American War, again, more of an experiment than anything else. It's not really until World War I that you really find widespread balloon usage, where you find blimps obviously are used extensively uh, for observation. And, and part of this has to do with the range of artillery going much beyond what people can see on the ground. And so um, balloons are really key for that uh, in, in the First World War. But of course, the advent of aircraft mean that the, 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 the utility of balloons in the First World War. I mean, the First World War is probably the peak of military ballooning, but it's also yes. the end. And to, exactly, to right. Extent. Oh, to be sure, right. Uh, and, and balloons, obviously, once you have airplanes that can shoot down balloons, then, then their uh, utility is, is, is pretty limited. World War One is, I think, also an interesting place to think about where the territorial bounds of the United States extend or where countries extend. Because one of the issues that they had to deal with at the end of the First World War was where does, in its airspace, where does a country's airspace end, right? Do, do you have a right to fly over another country or not? Uh, and the rule they came up with in 1919, there was an international treaty about this, essentially said that a country's airspace extended indefinitely upward forever, um, which made a whole lot of sense in 1919, but as we can see in, in the years to come, it made less sense in the years that, that followed. Um, and I think one of the interesting things about you know, this flight of a Chinese uh, balloon last week is of course Chinese satellites are constantly flying over the United States, gathering all kinds of information about everything. And people are more or less blase about that, but a balloon because it's in American airspace, quote unquote, is, is of a different category of things. Uh, and really the only difference between those two is a matter of how far up it is. I mean, that, that's all true, David. Um, that being the case, why, what, what's the benefit of balloons? You know, if we assume this is either a weather balloon or a spy balloon or both, hmm. what what advantages does a balloon have that a satellite doesn't? Because otherwise, I mean, the, the Chinese aren't stupid and this caused an international incident. So there's an element of risk involved in this. So why would why would you launch a spy balloon when you could when there are satellites, presumably, that could do the job? That's a really good question. And I don't have a good answer to that. I mean, presumably, there's a the technological things they can do at. 80,000 feet that they can't do it 50 miles up. Right. But uh, I, I, you know, in terms of cameras and who knows. Um, I'm not quite sure I, I'd like the idea of calling these spy balloons anyway, because spying implies some kind of subterfuge. I think these are information gathering balloons. So surveillance balloons, I mean, is surveillance, it Surveillance, yeah, I mean, I think, it, which has, you know, one of the things that, you know, the, the world we live in right now is that, you know, governments are gathering a huge amount of information about each other and about the people who live in other countries, whether that's through satellites, whether that's through balloons, whether that's through TikTok, you know, the, the, the Chinese have a huge amount of information on Americans, Americans have a huge amount of information on China, and everybody has information on everybody else. And so I think it's more about the, I don't know, the word spying implies some kinds of, of, of 
you know, stealing somebody else's secrets kinds of stuff. Well, no, no, no. David, I actually want to push back on that. Uh, first of all, I agree with you. And I don't know whether you saw the uh, Saturday Night Live cold open on this. last. Yes, week. I did. Yes. Very funny. And and there were two jokes in there that really landed in particular. They interviewed the balloon and that was funny. Uh, <laughs> one was, look, if you're worried about being surveilled, why don't you unplug Alexa? And the other was, don't worry. We we The guy speaking as the Chinese balloon said, we've got all your information from TikTok. So both of those things are true. Having said that, um, the the United States and China are certainly international rivals at this time. Mm. Uh, this craft was a was gathering information over the United States and on the United States on behalf of well we don't know whether it was a Chinese company or a government owned Chinese company or the Chinese government directly but on behalf of a Chinese entity without permission um that's spying i mean yes. you, 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 there may be lots of ways to gather information you're okay. absolutely right about that but i i, I um I, and if you look at the response to this by both governments including the chinese who briefly apologized which is not something they're in the habit of doing the chinese government at the moment these days but there was a brief kind of hey we're sorry about this um mm before the United States shot it down, and the military response by the United States. Now, a lot of this was dictated by domestic politics in both countries, I acknowledge that. But uh, to, to go back to the duck, if it walks like a duck and looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's like, I think this is spying, David. I mean, okay. it, may be, it may be a more benign well, version of it, but yeah. I don't know what else you'd call it. Well, I think it, I think you have, you have to put it into the context of just the huge amount of information that, that governments now have command uh, of. And and you know it fits into a much larger ethos than than simply the kind of James Bondish kind of uh, spy work that that might you know, people might think of. Sure, but um, I think this form of spying is probably a lot more common than the James Bond version, frankly. Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, yes, yes, <laughs> without a doubt. Right. Um, thinking about those as a as a weapon, though, there's an interesting analogy with what happened. You mentioned World War One being these apex of ballooning. There are some balloons that are used in World War II, and there are some balloons that are used in World War II against the United States by Japan. Do you know about this? No, I don't. Okay, so after the uh, Doolittle raid on Japan, when the United States could hit the Japanese mainland um, from uh, islands and aircraft carriers and whatnot, Japan wanted to retaliate, but they didn't have the planes or the, sh or the ships that could do that. So what they built were incendiary balloons uh, that were designed to set fire to uh, forests in the American Pacific Northwest. So they launched uh, in 1944, 1945, something like 9,300 balloons from Japan that were supposed to catch the jet stream wow. and land in the United States and set for, uh, for huge forest fires. Um, wasn't particularly effective. Uh, because they, they did set a few, there were a few fires that were caused that were quickly put out. The United States tried to keep the whole thing very quiet because they didn't want Americans to panic and they didn't want the Japanese to know that their balloons had actually gotten there. Uh, there was one uh, incident where Americans were killed by these balloons and it was wow. a, church, a church group that uh, was hiking, I think in Washington state. They had come across one of these balloons that had landed and uh, uh, it's the bomb. And one of the children went up to the bomb 
and poked at it with a stick or something because they didn't know what it was. And it blew up and it killed a, a handful of people. Uh, so there have been uh, foreign enemy, enemy balloons that have killed Americans in wartime. Uh, I didn't know that, right. So that, 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 that's the, the, you know, the worst case scenario, at least the historical worst case scenario of uh, balloons attacking somebody, um, in, in, at least in the United States. You know, we've still got blimps today, David, but basically the Hindenburg ended the kind of commercial uh, possibilities for, 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 balloons, <laughs> for, yes, for, for travel. Is that, is that a fair statement? You hear Explosive. so often about people like trying to, to, to reinvent the blimp as a mode of transportation, uh, but it doesn't seem like you know, that, that story should reappears every five years that somebody wants to do that. But it, it does seem like the Hindenburg has turned people off from that particular uh, idea. I always want to travel by a blimp. It seems like a very civilized way to travel. But uh, uh, yeah, it, is not, it has not uh, made a major reappearance. Have uh, you ever been up in a balloon, David? No, I've not. Have you? No, 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 no. It's not something that appeals to me. I have to confess. I have, I have a fear of heights, so I'm not. I'm right. Not okay. Big. Well, the, uh, <laughs> uh, the, the little like the wicker basket ones seem terrifying. Um, so, 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 David, after World War II, I mean, the, what happened in the, during the Cold War? We, we've got balloons, right? Uh, yeah. Well, so, so there's a huge, there's a, a huge interest in balloons by the United States for military purposes. Uh, in the 1950s. Um, there are a number of projects the United States puts together to try to understand what's going on in the Soviet Union. We think balloons are the best way to do that. Uh, probably the largest of these is something called uh, Project Generix, which had these huge balloons that go up 50 to 100,000 feet, so about the same as the, the Chinese balloon did. Uh, and they launched in 1955 and 1956 both from the United States and from uh, military bases and allied military bases around the world, including a few in Scotland. Uh, and they're designed to sort of fly over the Soviet Union uh, and uh, take photographs. Uh, doesn't work very well. They launched more than 500 of these things. They're only able to recover about 50 of them. And out of those are only able to get photos from about 30. Um, MiG pilots, they, 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 they figure out that these balloons are too high to shoot during daytime uh, because the, the, the balloons are flying much higher than, than the Soviet airplanes can fly. Uh, but uh, at night, when, because of air pressure and, and whatnot, the, the balloons go lower. And then so at sunrise, you can shoot them. And so the, the Soviet pilots enjoyed shooting these things down. Um, but there's a lot of experimentation with balloons then. The uh, Roswell uh, incident that leads everyone to believe that there are aliens in Roswell, New Mexico, is probably the product of experimentation with some of these balloons where, we, where the government was trying to build balloons to spy on the Soviets. Oh, David, the lamestream media would have you believe that. You're a sucker. <laughs> Too short, right? Uh, <laughs> I really hope there are aliens and that'd be much more fun, but the evidence doesn't suggest that. Um, the the failure of these projects in some ways is what leads to um, the development of the U-2 spy plane, um, which you know, was designed to be basically a, uh, you know, a, a glider in some ways, a, a you know, very lightweight plane designed to fly at a very high altitude and take photos with a very specialized camera of, of Soviet installations. And it was believed that it was flying so high that it'd be impossible for 
the Soviets to, to shoot it down. Of course, in 1960, there's a very famous incident in which one of these planes is shot down. And the uh, cover story that, that the um, Air Force had when this plane and the CIA had for when this plane was shot down was to say that it was a weather aircraft. So it's a, in some ways, a very similar kind of story. So their story was, this was not a military plane. It was not an op. It was not a spy plane. This was a, a weather plane. And they said it. What, what they their, their cover story was that uh, that the pressurization must have failed in the plane. The pilot would have gone unconscious, and the plane therefore drifted uh, off course into Soviet airspace. Sorry about that. Um, what they assumed when they put this story out was that that the plane. Uh, would have crashed and that the pilot would have died and that the equipment on the plane would have been destroyed. As it turns out, the pilot didn't die. Uh, Francis Gary Powers was a, was taken prisoner by the Soviets and he basically said what, what the plane was, what it was for. And the Soviets had the camera, which made it pretty clear that it was not a weather plane, that it was a, a spy plane. Um, and it was a major incident in 1960, really sort of set US-Soviet uh, relations back a major step. There was a, it was two weeks before a major uh, summit was supposed to happen in Paris. Uh, that was not only between the United States and the Soviet Union, but also the French and the British. And that conference, which had a great deal of promise to it, largely went sideways because of this incident. Uh, and it had major ramifications uh, domestically in both the Soviet Union and the United States. But of course, thanks to the advent of sa satellites and, you know, this is the dawn of the space age, the yeah. uh, that kind of intelligence gathering is kind of gone by the wayside, at least we're led to believe so, because most of it's oh. done by aircraft that are not, um, that don't have human crews. True. Although they're 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 using the the U two that particular spy plane for decades afterwards, uh, so it is um, you know they, they are relying on those as well. Part of it was about the satellites' capacities for cameras and whatnot. It isn't you know it's until the really this century that that they have really really good cameras that could compare with with what they had from, uh, from airplanes. And can transmit back, of course. That's the important thing because with the those original spy balloons in the fifties, one of the problems is. They you get have to, yeah, you have to be able to recover the the camera in order to get the data if it's taken the pictures successfully. So that's uh, there, there's a there's a lot of um, uh, a lot of conditions have to be met for that to be to be useful. Uh, do you know what happened to Francis Gary Powers? Uh, yeah, um, he was in a Soviet prison, I think, for two years, and then they exchanged him. And then my understanding is, I think he went. And he died in a helicopter accident. That's in right. Seventy-seven. Yeah. Uh, he was working for like a television station or something. Yeah, I think um, he was doing kind of, you know, it was a traffic copter. Um, <laughs> exactly. And, I mean, kind of an unlucky guy to be in two aircraft crashes, including one that was fatal. And of course, that. Sorry, I don't mean to make light of that and say he was unlucky. He was very unlucky, but um, uh, to be shot down and then to die in a helicopter crash. I mean, I guess he was a pilot, and uh, you know, a, a, a pilot at. Uh, First, a test pilot and, and a, um, a spy pilot. So I guess that's and, and these planes were were extraordinarily difficult to fly. I mean, yeah. the, the accounts of them is, is they were you know challenging to fly at low altitudes. They were very challenging to fly at high altitudes. Um, you know, and, and so you know the fact that, that that he was able to 
uh, you know, it was a very long flight that was when he got shot down on. You mentioned satellites. I think the one uh, interesting comparison to what happened last week um, with people sort of looking at um, the, this Chinese uh, balloon was what happened with Sputnik in October of 1957. Because I think there was a similar kind, you know, I think there was a response to Sputnik that was, I think, it has some interesting parallels. You know, there was a surprise that. Sputnik was able to fly over the United States and over the rest of the world, uh, that you could listen to it on your radio. Um, that I think interesting parallels in this and maybe a different kind of panic than what happened last week, but uh, not totally dissimilar. No, I, I mean, I push back a little bit on that, David, insofar as, uh, I mean, Sputnik was a shock because, well, for a number of reasons. One, it seemed to suggest the Soviets were better at science and technology than than the U.S. and its allies. Mm. And there's a little concern about that, I think, in the United States about China at the moment. But the response, notwithstanding my joking at the beginning here, was sort of amusement, I think. And and I, my sense is that this will be a pretty short-lived story. I mean, Sputnik did cause, arguably, Sputnik led to the space race and led to the moon, you know, the Apollo project and everything else. Sure. Uh, I don't see this leading to that. I have a feeling this might be one of those, you know, in the year in review at the end, you know, at the end of next year, you'll say, Oh, oh yeah. Remember, remember that remember balloon? The balloon? Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so, so let's, I, let's I hope so. Yeah. I, 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 I don't think it's that kind of shock. I, I mean, I could, what do I know? It could be wrong, but I, I, I think that might be overstating the case a little bit. Well, I, I think it's just the, the fascination to the Americans, this foreign piece of technology in the air um, and, and the amusement about what it is and what it's doing. Um, because I think the question with Sputnik, when you know, people are wondering what is, what is it doing in space? And I think the question about what this balloon was doing or not doing uh, 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 you know, raised similar kinds of, of questions. Um, Sputnik, as far as I could tell, was just beeping at us, whereas who knows what this thing was doing. Um, flying over the United States. And it sounds like the Navy and the Coast Guard have recovered at least parts of the, the apparatus uh, from the, the uh, Chinese blimp. And so maybe they'll have some understanding of what exactly this thing was doing, much the same way that the uh, Soviets were able to get Powers' U-2 plane and his cameras and figure out what he was doing. Yeah. Yep. I mean, maybe. Um, and you may, I'm now recalling, as you say that, right before, and I didn't research this before the episode, mm. so I, I probably had the facts of this wrong now that it's 20 years ago. Right before the, the invasion of Iraq, if memory serves, wasn't a U.S. spy plane forced down, forced to land in Hong Kong? Uh, that sounds there right. Was, there was a, again, I, I am pulling this out of the recesses of my mind. So mm. listeners, forgive me if you've got a better memory of this. Um, uh, and, and I should have checked this before I started talking. Uh, but, but as I recall, and there was a great deal of sort of Sturman drawing about, oh, they're going to get our like, technology. And it, it kind of got washed over by the um, by everything else that, mm. <laughs> uh, that happened sure. subsequently, the, the, the Iraq war and so on. But there was, there was a great kind of, panic, I think, at that point, about 20 years ago over the Chinese. Again, it was a U.S. biplane in this case, and the Chinese getting the technology. Similarly, during the, uh, a few years before that, in the 90s, during the uh, U.S. military intervention in the Balkans, 
Um, there was a, there was an incident when a U.S. stealth plane was uh, shot down by the Serbs, um, and it, it bombed the Chinese embassy. Do you remember that? Uh, yes, after, I do remember that. By mistake, yes, bombed the, the, the Chi- yeah, bombed the and said, "Oh, sorry, it was it was old maps." But one of the stories that circulated at the time was the Serbs had shared the remnants of that stealth oh, plane okay. with the Chinese, and those remnants were in the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, Belgrade, and that's why they did it. Who knows if this is true? So, so uh, great powers and rivals are always going to want each other's technology and grab it when they can. Um, and, and so this is of a piece with that, I guess. Again, well, forgiveness if I've muddled up some of the details of that, because this just occurred things, to me. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that strikes me in the past 20 years with the rise of, of drones is, you know, this idea about territorial airspace and who gets to claim control over territorial airspace and what the consequences are for violating territorial airspace. A lot of those seem to have gone out the window. Um, that, you know, the United States is, you know, over the past 20 years ha- has, um, at least according to the letter of the law, violated the territorial airspace of a whole bunch of countries. Um, some of whom have the capacity to respond, many of which don't. Um, and one wonders whether the this sort of 1919 version of who the air belongs to is is upholdable as a as a principle of international law or upholdable as an idea at all. Um, and I think this you know blimp in some ways sort of calls calls all that into question. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. And and of course the joking about unplug your Alexa or stop going on TikTok mm. suggests there's an entirely different um, space, cyberspace, mm. where uh, sovereignty is is impossible to police. So it used to be territorial borders and even maritime borders were recognized borders, right. and pretty easy to to, to identify. Um, but once you add different dimensions, it it's, uh, becomes more complicated. Well, I mean that that came up, you know, in in in, in the fifties with with Sputnik, where where you know some people were saying, look, this is violating America's territorial sovereignty because it's flying over the United States at you know an altitude, of course, that we couldn't do anything about it. And, and Eisenhower, I think, concluded, well, first we can't do anything about it, so I'm not going to do anything about it. And second, I'm planning on launching satellites myself, and and so we don't want to have a tit for tat. So there's an interesting both legal gray area about sort of where all these things are justified and where they are, where they're not. Uh, and I think we're going to be dealing with the consequences of that as, as there are more drones and drone-like things and, and various other kinds of flying cars and other kinds of nonsense going to show up over the next 50 years. Well, particularly as that technology becomes more widespread, it's okay when you've got a monopoly on the technology or two powers have it. But now we're seeing this in the in the Ukraine war, in fact, is that the use of drones in warfare has has become democratized with a small d, as opposed Mm -hmm. to what we saw during the invasion of Iraq, for example, when the U.S. and its allies more or less had the preponderance of, of drone power. That's no longer the case. And one wonders in such a world if you know, will we see a kind of, will we see international agreements and treaties trying to limit what can be done or, and to limit space or not, you know, will it be a free for all? And that's a very interesting question, but the, 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 the tensions arise when the technology spreads, not when one yes. power has it really. That makes sense. 
I think. But right. Well, we will see uh, whether more more balloons. Keep your eyes open, Frank, as you go outside, just in case. And I'll be the first to spot. It'd be always a good idea. Uh, time for the last drops. What you got? I don't know whether this is history uh, or not, but I want to um, send my tiny congratulations uh, to Bonnie Raitt for winning the Grammy the other night for best song for Just Like That. Uh, the Daily Mail, which is not a, a, a media organ that I read very often, and that is to say I never read it, never click on the Daily Mail, um, but had a headline, Unknown Blues Singer Beats Beyonce, Adele, what? and Taylor Swift to Win Song of the Year. Uh, I mean, Bonnie Raitt is many things, she's not unknown. Um, and and I, what I will say, there was a backlash on social media about this. So there is a historic dimension to it, I guess, um, with people saying they've never heard of Bonnie Raitt. Um, uh, what I would say to the fans of Beyonce, Adele, and Taylor Swift is that hopefully they will someday be 73 years old and still producing music that's, that is Grammy-worthy, and their fans will be happy about it. So congratulations to Bonnie Raitt. Oh, oh congratulations to Bonnie Raitt, who's a wonderful artist. What this reminds me of is there was a, a controversy at the Grammys I want to say 30 years ago when they had a new category it was for like hard rock and heavy metal for the first time and they had all these big popular hard rock heavy metal bands competing for whatever this award was metallica and I don't right know else. and they gave it do you know who they gave the first rep, the first one to i do not it was jethro tull right okay which <laughs> And the explanation for, for why that, that they end up getting it is that the people who vote on these kinds of things come from a wide diversity of, of musical backgrounds, many of whom are not heavy metal fans, and they had heard of Jethro Tull, so they vote for Jethro Tull. Um, and this may be a, a similar kinds of uh, uh, demographic split among the voters, among the uh, Beyonce voters and similar kinds of could be. I have no idea who votes on the Grammys and how the Grammys are awarded. I don't actually care very much. I, I've got a, of the major awards. I don't care about any of them. Uh, you know, the Oscars give me an indication of what I might want to see. You know, you like the music you like. It doesn't really matter who wins the Grammy. Um, you know, and, and Beyonce, Adele and Taylor Swift are all very talented and producing wonderful music. They'll be fine. Sure. Um, yeah, nothing, <laughs> yes. nothing to worry about. There. But, but I, I can highly recommend that song, though, just like that. It's a beautiful song. It's quite a poignant song. Um, so, so yeah. Anyway, it's not, as I say, not directly history related, uh, history related, except in so far as you know, fifty years from now, somebody will ask who won the Grammy and for best song in twenty twenty three, and it will be Bonnie Raitt's "Just Like That." Great. What, what about you, David? Uh, I want to recommend an article in the New York Times Magazine on the sturgeon. Uh, which uh, on the Atlantic surgeon in particular, which uh, is in highly endangered, uh, you know, and if you are an early American historian, you're reading about uh, the, the aquatic life and the fish that people were, were catching and living off of in the, in the Chesapeake, not far from where you are. They were finding huge sturgeon and that were, they were ubiquitous and a very important part of life for, for, for Native Americans in the region, for, for colonial settlers well into the 19th century. Uh, and they are now um, very, very rare. Uh, and so it's about the articles about efforts to try to preserve these and very important fish that are, uh, as a species, very old. They're older than, you know, than the dinosaur kinds of things. They look sort of prehistoric in their structure. And it will be a sad day when and if they ever uh, go extinct. 
Are they? Is there a movement to save them? Is oh, there's a huge to movement save to them? save them, but there's all kinds of issues with with pollution in in the you know in the water uh, the waterways in which these animals are living, and there have been for for decades. So you know, the, you, right. you don't you walk outside, you're not going to you know see that many sturgeon anymore. So so it's a interesting story about that. The limits, in some ways, of the Clean Water Act and the uh, Endangered Species Act that, that they haven't done able to do more to protect this particular fish. And worth reading. Right. Okay. Thank you, David. So it, listen yes. to Bonnie Raitt's song just like that and read about sturgeon. Sturgeon, exactly. <laughs> I'm not sure what the connection is there, but to be sure. Right. Excellent. Next week, Frank. Okay. Cheers. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and Dean International for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.